Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Copts, episode 17, Two Swords and a Spear. Last week, we stopped with Julian becoming an emperor and San Athanasius escaping Alexandria for the fourth time. The whole episode of returning from exile and then leaving again took place between February and October 362 AD. So less than a year overall, yet it became another badge of honor, possibly even more prestigious than the previous exiles as he was persecuted by a pagan emperor. So in the heartland of Egypt, he was more or less going around openly, performing public prayers and dedicating churches. At some point so, he received a warning from his friends that imperial agents are coming after him with a vengeance. So he took a boat and planned to disappear for a while. In the boat, the wind was against him, and it was painfully slow. So San Athanasius decides to take a corner and pray, while the monks that were with him were working hard to row the boat. When he finished, he turned to the monks and started to dictate his last wishes if he died. But the monks just smiled at him. Apparently the monks have received a vision while he was praying that Julian has died. But that was not even the most famous or the most commonly told vision that was going around in Egypt then. Basil, the bishop of Caesarea, had run afoul of Julian and was asked to pay a large sum as a fine and a contribution to Julian's war with Persia. Basil was having trouble collecting the money, so he went to sleep with the matter on his mind and praying about the issue. He dreamt that the heavens was opened and he heard Jesus Christ commanding a legendary saint named Flaubertier Marcurios to go forth and kill Julian. In the Coptic tradition, an icon of Flaubertier Marcurios changed as well when he disappeared from the picture and then came back again with a bloodied spear. Now, Flaubertier Marcurius was a Christian soldier who was martyred in the persecution of Decius almost a hundred years earlier. As a soldier, he was represented by two swords, one given to him by the army and one given to him by the archangel Michael as a tool of divine justice. But after the incidents with Julian, now He's got two swords and a spear, and became hugely popular in Egypt, no doubt helped by the appreciation of his intervention 
by Senesinesius. I have put a medieval version of his icon up on the podcast website from the historical hanging church in Egypt. And that's how somewhat unknown saint from Asia Minor became one of the most famous saints for the cops in Egypt, where countless churches and monasteries are dedicated to him. But, visions aside, let's step back and see the political situation of how Julian died and how his death shaped the Copts. Within a year or so of Julian becoming an emperor, he embarked on a serious project. Either out of a desire to achieve glory, or to put the soldiers to good use, he decided to invade Persia. Now, for students of Roman history, you could see the folly of this, as Roman emperors have tried to invade Persia since the time of Mark Antony and have repeatedly came short. Supply routes were always an issue, and the farther you went from the Mediterranean, the harder it became to hold territory. Nonetheless, Julian decided that he can succeed where others have failed, and made a reasonable plan to solve the supply route issue and reach the Persian capital with a limited loss of life. His plan was to have a massive fleet to accompany the army up the Euphrates River to feed the army through the hostile territory, then use the Euphrates and the Tigris with various canals to reach the Persian capital with a remarkable speed. The plan seemed to be working up until he reached the capital. Heavily fortified and essentially impregnable, Julian did not know what to do then. He did not plan for a lengthy siege and was not super confident about meeting the large Persian army in hostile territory and then still had to do the siege anyway. Faced with the grim prospects, he decided to burn the ships so the Persian would not use them and then he moved his army deeper into the heartland of Persia. That was a fateful decision, as the Persian army constantly harassed their advance, and at some point, in an undecisive battle, Julian decided to rush into the battle without his full armor. Then during the chaos, he got hit with a spear, and while his wound was not fatal immediately, he ended up dying within two days. Thus was the end of the last pagan emperor of the Romans. In an ironic twist, the last male member of the family of Constantine, the first Christian emperor. Now, for an average person in Egypt during this time, it truly seemed that Julian's death was another sign that God intervened to protect the true faith and its champion, San Asenesius. And as such, San Asenesius set out to meet the new emperor with faith on his side. Speaking of the new emperor, following Julian's death, the Roman army in Persia named the head of his bodyguard as an emperor, a man named Juvian. Juvian got the army out of Persia after giving up some territories in a peace treaty, and as soon as he arrived in Antioch, he was met by Senesinesius, requesting to be returned to his seat. Now, Jovian at this point was in a really tricky spot. His hold on power was shaky to say the least, and he was quite unpopular because of the humiliating treaty he signed with the Persians. Senesinesius' petition was a gift for him to get some legitimacy and popularity, 
As such, not only he restored St. Athanasius, he showered him with praise and raised his profile even larger. He also restored the favorable position of Christianity, and it did seem, at least for the moment, he was keeping the theological problems at bay. To be fair to Jovian, sir, his high regard to St. Athanasius seemed to be genuine and irrespective of the political convenience. He went as far as to formally request from St. Athanasius a statement of faith that could serve as his religious policy. To which St. Athanasius responded by a council in Egypt that emphasized the importance of the creed drawn in the Council of Nicaea. And even when one of George's entourage, a priest named Lucius, got ordained as a bishop and recognized as the Bishop of Alexandria by a few bishops outside of Egypt, Jovian refused to acknowledge him or even grant him an official audience. Too bad he didn't last for long. He left Antioch within six months of his arrival to go to his capital, Constantinople, and in his way there, he died in mysterious circumstances. Another general followed him, named Valentinian, who, in a move from the Constantinian family playbook, appointed his brother, Valens, as co-Augustus and divided the empire in two halves, east and west. Valentinian got the west, and Valens got the east and Egypt. One of Valens' first acts was to restore the semi-Aryan creed as the official faith statement of the east, a position that was obviously antagonistic to St. Athanasius. But learning from Constantius's mistakes, he announced that bishops who wished to keep their seats did not have to accept the creed, just to merely not attack it. Valentinian, for his part, took great pains not to get involved, and even when pressured, he responded that as a layman, he cannot give an opinion. So, the old fault lines of East and West appeared again. Semi-Aryans dominated the Eastern churches, and the Orthodox ones dominated the Western churches in Egypt. Yet, no one was satisfied at this arrangement, and new battles over Pacific bishops were happening every day. Until, Valens finally intervened with an edict to exile the bishop that Constantius had exiled and Julian restored, to make sure that there is a unified position, at least in his territory. Now, St. Athanasius was in a gray area, since he was exiled by Constantius, restored and then exiled again by Julian, and finally returned again by Juvian. Technically, the order, in its strictest legal sense, did not apply to him. But everyone knew that it did apply to him. The prefect tried to diplomatically ask him to leave Alexandria to which a group of citizens defended St. Athanasius and claimed that the edict does not apply to him. The city was getting an edge, so the prefect promised that he will write to the emperor for clarifications. Four months later, either with the clarification, or on his own initiative, the prefect in the docks of Egypt led a group of soldiers to try and arrest St. Athanasius. But as usual, St. Athanasius was out of Alexandria, before they started moving, and again he was hiding with the monks. Well, maybe not entirely out of Alexandria. At this point, he probably could have went anywhere, 
and find enough supporters to hide him. His fifth exile lasted only for four months. A distant relative of Julian was proclaimed emperor in Constantinople, and for a second, Valens was seriously concerned about his rule. Getting the province of Egypt in his pocket became a priority, and as such, he tried to win over the Egyptians by restoring Sinasinasius again. So on February 1st, 366 AD, Sinasinasius was welcomed back in Alexandria for the fifth and the final time, where he enjoyed the last few years in his reign, free from imperial hostility and with a solid grip on the whole of Egypt. Well, it wasn't really completely free of trouble. Within six months, a massive pagan riot occurred that completely destroyed the church of the Caesarea. Before the end of the year, the Arian bishop, Lucius, foolishly goes to Alexandria to try and set up a rival church. But as soon as his arrival became known, the crowds go after him, and he hides at his mom's house. Yep, St. Athanasius' grip was that strong. Lucius could not find anyone to shelter him but his mom. He had to be rescued by the garrison and escorted away from Egypt under armed guard. But he will come back to our narrative, so do not forget about him. Other than that, Valens left St. Athanasius alone, and St. Athanasius more or less stayed away from the charged theological controversies so long as they left the Church of Egypt alone. By 368 AD, St. Athanasius celebrated his 40th year on the throne of St. Mark, having outlasted Constantine, his three sons, Julian, Juvian, and Valens, with the scars of five exiles, endless councils that condemned him, and countless bishops that abandoned him. Yet, here he is, celebrating his 40th anniversary on the throne of St. Mark. On this occasion, he commissioned a history of the Church of Alexandria, and published and revised a lot of his writings. Outside of Egypt, while extremely cautious about picking his battles, his opinion carried a great weight, and he was regarded as a symbol of the true faith and unyielding resistance. In April 373 AD, St. Athanasius picked his successor, and then died four days later, leaving a legacy of resistance that will shape the Copts to this day. Even his fiercest critics give him that he never compromised on what he regarded as the true faith. In his resistance, he taught the Copts many lessons that are worth remembering, as they will come again and again in our narrative. The first, and I think most important, is the mantra of unyielding theological resistance. The Coptic Pope, at least until the Arabs arrived, but I would argue even to this day, once identified or sponsored a theological position, they stuck with it and they did not compromise much. The political situation, imperial policy, or even fellow bishops' positions did not matter. The only thing that mattered is, is it the right position or not? And the distinction between right and wrong laid solely with the Egyptian bishops as a local matter. Was the Coptic Pope serving as their spiritual leader, a first among equals? St. Athanasius was the model, and his example would be followed to the letter time and time again. 
For those reading ahead, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD was a watershed moment for the history of the Copts, and it is precisely for that unyielding resistance that it became such an important milestone. The Coptic cathedral in Cairo today had the remains of two popes, St. Mark and St. Athanasius. The symbolism should not be lost. St. Mark died a martyr, and St. Athanasius fought to the end of his life to protect the faith. Martyrdom and unyielding theological resistance are the foundation which the Coptic identity and history is built on. A fiery Coptic historian once remarked that the Copts, generally, told the whole world what they believed, and when the world refused to listen, they walked out. The second lesson he left is the importance of monasticism as a fortress to maintain the independence of the Coptic Church. Monks, generally speaking, are extremely difficult to pressure or force into politically convenient positions. As such, cultivating a relationship between the official church hierarchy and the monastic one is extremely important for the Bishop of Alexandria. In a perfect world, the Bishop of Alexandria would have the people, the government, and the monks behind him. But really, when it comes down to it, the monks will suffice. Following that line, being a monk in time will become a requirement for the office of a bishop or the pope. Now, the monks tried, and mostly succeeded, to retain a degree of independence, and as such, as we will see in our narrative, sometimes they resisted the Coptic pope and bishops and specific theological points, and instead of serving as a fortress, they served as a sworn in his side. St. Athanasius not only left a model for Egypt for monasticism, his reign life of St. Antony became an ancient bestseller, and in time, monasteries will be all over Europe and Asia Minor. The development of monasteries inside and outside Egypt will not be the same for various reasons, most prominent of which is the isolation of the Copts once the Arabs invaded, but the basic idea will stay the same. Senesanesius was also the first bishop to offer a vehicle for the exhibition of an Egyptian national identity through the Christian religion. Now, I don't mean by that any kind of 18th or 19th century nationalism, but rather that by painting Gregory and George, his replacement bishops, as foreign, heretical bishops, he attacked their theological beliefs, as well as the fact they were foreigners coming to take charge of the Egyptian church. Religion have always been a prominent issue in the history of Egypt, and increasingly, Christianity will take place of Serapis and the Abbas Bull as the expression of a national identity. I'm not going to go as far as some historians who see the various theological controversies of the 4th and the 5th century as purely national resistance of the Egyptians against the imperial masters. But there were definitely an element of desiring to maintain local control, and the Coptic Church served as a vehicle for resisting imperial rule for the Egyptians. Zanathanasius' legacy looms large for all Christians, and specifically the Copts. His writings have influenced every single theologian since his death. From Augustine 
to C.S. Lewis, his ideas form the foundation of what we think of today as Christianity. He was not a perfect man, no one is. He was strong-headed and especially while younger used all means necessary, including political and physical pressure to make sure that his church and his flock fall in line behind him and orthodoxy. And for that, some historians see him as a feisty political figure in the garments of a priest. But I would strongly argue that he was a man of God, forced to play the role of a politician. And he played it as any true man of God would, not compromising even a bit. When he died, the battle for the soul of the empire was still ongoing. And despite assigning a successor, the semi-Aryans would make a serious attempt in gaining Egypt and would find a receptive audience with Valens. San Asenasius assigned a priest named Peter to follow him, and the citizens and the clergy of Alexandria accepted Peter readily. Unfortunately, the imperial government and the prefect wanted a say in the matter, and as such, shortly after his election, the church of Sionis, where he was residing, was surrounded by the garrison, and the newly enthroned Pope Peter II was arrested. Somehow he escaped, and just like his mentor Athanasius, he immediately made his way to Rome. The Bishop of Rome at this point was Damasus, who was newly elected in a highly contentious election. Nonetheless, he felt secure enough to support Pope Peter and allow him to form a base of resistance from exile. Now, Lucius, the Arian bishop, became the natural imperial candidate, but he was truly rejected by the populace, and as such, extensive, systemic, and brutal violence was used in one of the best documented episodes of systemic violence by the imperial government against the Egyptians. The prefect was a pagan, possibly a leftover from the reign of Julian, but either way, Lucius find a willing partner in enforcing his will. A display of naked force was accomplished by having those killed in the riot when Lucius entered Alexandria to stay unburied in the streets as a warning to the populace. Then, the leading clergy of the city were gathered up, imprisoned, and possibly tortured to support Lucius. When that failed, they were exiled to Lebanon. When a crowd gathered in the harbor to say their goodbyes to the clergy and express their support, the prefect arrested them and sent them to the mines. A deacon sent from Rome with words of comfort from Peter and Damasus was also arrested and sent to the mines. Then the persecution extended to the heartland of Egypt. Eleven bishops were arrested and exiled. Finally, Lucius and the prefect arrived at the last and most formidable stronghold of Egyptian Christianity, the monks. A 3,000 strong force went to the desert of Sikitis, was the stated mission to bring the monks into line. But perhaps realizing that they will probably have to massacre all the monks to impose their will, a tactful decision was taken to arrest and exile their leaders two monks that are both named Macarius. Both monks were sent to the island of Philae in the Nile, 
the southernmost point on its borders, and the last big and stronghold of Egypt. In a legendary episode, when the two monks arrived to the island, the pagan priest's daughter fell into a trance, shouting at the monks, Why have you come here to cast us out? And then she had a seizure. The monks comforted her, and eventually Christianity took a foothold in the island. The pagan temple stayed open so, under the protection of the southern neighbors of Egypt, until the time of the Empire Justinian. The Temple of Philae would be the last pagan temple to close in Egypt. The monks never fell in line, and the two Macariuses were returned from exile quickly. The situation in Alexandria was quite similar to the early days of St. Athanasius and Gregory. A bishop preferred by the government in Alexandria, and a bishop preferred by the people in exile. Pope Peter was safe in Rome, where it was Valentinian's domain. Valentinian have shown himself unwilling to intervene in church matters and refused to take sides, and thus the situation stayed the same for about five years, until the political situation changed in 378 AD in one legendary battle of Adrianople. The Battle of Adrianople was a watershed moment for the Roman Empire that ushered a new age. But that would have to wait for next week, where Empress Eudosius will appear, Bobiter will return, the Bedouin Arabs will get a queen and a bishop, and Bobiter will attempt to extend the Coptic Church influence to Constantinople itself, but he will fail with significant consequences. Farewell, and until next week.